All right, good morning. Let's uh, flip over to Acts chapter 28. And uh, the goal today will be to finish off Acts. Uh, real quick, I have a, one other announcement uh, pretty excited about. So uh, you might notice, I think Luke even announced we have that, the kind of the donation-based book thing out there. Uh, so two of the books that are out there are written by a guy named Craig Blomberg, who is essentially the grand poobah of New Testament historical studies. Um, he's, I don't know, written like about a million books or something like that, but he's, he's actually a pretty nice guy. Uh, I've emailed him in the past, um, and he's gotten back to me with some questions. So we were sitting in the office on uh, Tuesday. It's our, our uh, staff meetings on Tuesday at noon, and... Uh, and Luke was letting me know, hey, we have a uh, credit with Alaska Airlines and, um, because we're going to go to a conference and then COVID hit and whatnot. And, and, he, and so we're like, okay, what are we, we going to do with this? We're going to lose the money if we don't use it. And so uh, somebody, I think it was Luke Dana, said, hey, we should invite Craig Blomberg. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, let's invite Craig Blomberg. He's only like the superstar of Christianity. And so I was like, why not? So I emailed him and was like, hey, dude. I didn't say dude because he's Craig Blomberg. But I was like, <laughs> I said, hey, uh, you know, we have this airline credit. And we were wondering if you want to come speak at our church. Uh, it could be 15 people. It could be 150. I have no idea. He just emailed back. He's like, sounds good. What do you want to do? So, Yeah. It's pretty cool. Uh, December 4th and 5th, uh, Craig Blomberg's going to come out here and do a couple classes on the historical reliability of the New Testament. So, you know, all, the, all those great biology teachers that you had in high school, they were like, oh, it's been copied so many times. You can invite them. Um, and, uh, <laughs> but uh, anyway, so I'm excited about that. Craig Blomberg, December 4th and 5th. He's going to be doing two sessions on Saturday. We'll have a lunch in between, and then he'll be teaching uh, a, a historical perspective of Luke 1 uh, on Sunday morning. So he's a great guy, loves the Lord, and uh, we're going to be having him here. So we'll make it available to the community, and we'll be inviting some other, probably not for Sunday morning, we don't have the room, but for Saturday, uh, just inviting some other churches and so forth. So if, you're, if you've ever interested, been interested in, in why can I actually trust the Bible, why is it uh, a reliable text. Um, he's going to come talk about that. And if you want to know more, he does. The book is out there. Uh, it's uh, "Can We Still Believe the Bible?" and it's a it's a great book to read because it covers a lot of the arguments uh, that people try to make. Uh, honestly, the weakest of all, as a side note, is the Bible has been translated so many times. It's not really true. Uh, there's like 5,700 scraps of original uh, Greek and Aramaic, and it gets translated once every time. <laughs> from those same scriptures that it's, it's redone. So uh, he'll, he'll debunk a lot of that kind of stuff. Anyway, uh, exciting stuff. Acts chapter uh, 28. So uh, Acts has been quite a journey. I think it's been about a year and a half. I, I didn't, uh, wasn't able to look at how long we've been going through. But we started off with the Ascension and then Pentecost, and then the church is born, and then uh, the church has problems immediately after it's born, and the church deals with problems, and then people go out. You know, Paul begins to, Saul at that point, begins to persecute the church, and he's uh, torturing believers and imprisoning believers and trying to get them to blaspheme. And then, then Saul gets saved, changes his name to Paul. He starts, uh, he kind of goes into obscurity for some years and begins to, to study, and Jesus 
teaches him about the gospel. He receives the gospel and all that from him, uh, from Jesus, I should say. And then he kind of comes back on the scene. Remember when uh, some believers begin to, uh, or some people get saved in Antioch and Barnabas goes to Antioch and he's like, oh, this is amazing. This church is forming. All these Greek people are getting saved. And, and then uh, Barnabas says, hey, I need help here. I need some solid, somebody's going to do solid Bible teaching. So he goes to Tarsus. He gets Paul. He brings him back. Paul teaches at Antioch. They do some traveling. Mark ditches them at one point, and then we have the big, uh, uh, basically, split between Mark and or, sorry, between um, Paul and Barnabas. And Paul, uh, Paul says about Mark, he says, "Look, it's a very valid point." He says, "We can't bring this guy on the missionary trip with us. He already left us once, and, and it was evidently in bad standing." He said, "He left us once. He's not trustworthy. We're not going to take him." Barnabas says, "No, we got to take." You know, John, Mark, I mean, even, even this, those two guys, you see personality at work. Barnabas, his name means son of encouragement. What is he doing? Always encouraging people. Always like, you know, we're going to give Mark a second try. We're gonna, you know, he's always encouraging people. Who do you have, Paul? Paul's like, the work, baby. Boom, 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 right? Not that he's emotionless or a robot, but he's, he, he writes and says, I bear the marks of the Lord Jesus on my body. I've been beaten, you know, however, uh, so many times I can't count it. I've been whipped. I've been all these different things. He says, I'm not bringing a guy I can't depend on. And, Mar- and, and Barnabas says, hey, let's bring a guy and give him a second chance. The dispute gets so hot, they split. So Paul goes off. Barnabas goes off. Paul takes a journey. Uh, he journeys around with a different set of people. And Barnabas goes back to his hometown of Cyprus with John Mark. Then we follow through, the, through Acts and how Paul meets Timothy and these different people along the way. He's ministering all over the place. He has all this different peril that we, you could read about in his testimony to different churches. And then he ends up uh, finally being arrested. And we've been kind of studying that these last couple of months. He's arrested. He goes through Felix. He goes through Festus. He goes through King Agrippa II, constantly giving his testimony, impromptu kind of assemblies with uh, uh, the Sanhedrin, Jews from Asia accusing him. And then he ends up on, he appeals to Caesar, and he ends up on a boat. The boat shipwrecks. And then this is where we kind of pick up today. And as we've kind of talked about, I don't want to necessarily repeat other teachings or something like that, but you know, one of the most important things is it ends up embodied in Acts 28 is really how a servant of the Lord operates. And when I say servant of the Lord, that might seem very like high churchy or oh, the servants of the Lord, you know, but just really the idea of someone who wants to serve Jesus, someone who, says, who wants to say yes to Jesus in their life. Because the servant of the Lord, someone who wants to say yes to Jesus in their life, not all of us are going to have to be shipwrecked, right? We're not all good. None of us, we're probably not all going to have Paul's testimony in this sense. It doesn't mean it's better. It doesn't mean it's worse. It just means we're going to live a different life than Paul. But on the outside, the events that occur on the inside, it has to be the same. And it's this simple idea that we don't respond and react and go up and down with everything that happens. Can you imagine, if you look at Paul's life, all the things that occurred in his life, or Peter, or John, or Jesus, if they had become too introspective or selfish? And really what we're going to see today, and we'll finish off in Acts, is the fact that this life that Paul has been living, it ends up and it has a certain fruit to it. We're going to read here today that he spends two years in house arrest. And in those two years of house arrest, Anybody and everybody could come and hear him, and he would talk to them about the gospel. So in the end, his journey, his desire is fulfilled. It's just not fulfilled, perhaps, in the way he thought it would be. 
But ultimately, he got that privilege. But if, if he had decided along the way that all of a sudden he was the most important, that his desire was the most important, that his suffering was the most important, these options and these things, they would have never happened for us. At least that seems to be the case. Perhaps God would have raised somebody else up or whatever. We don't know. But there's, there's a certain fruit from living our life self-centered, and there's a certain fruit from living our life Christ-centered. And that's really what I look at today. And so if we look in, in Acts 27, the last verse of 20, uh, we'll, we'll say 43, 27, 43, this is on the boat. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump on board first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. And after we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. And the native people showed us uh, unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. And when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put, on, put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. And when the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. So remember, everything that we don't want to lose sight of everything that's led up to this. He's been in prison for two years. Felix left him there. Festus left him, left him there. Agrippa II left him there. And now he's on his way to Rome to go talk to Caesar or a representative. And it's with all that backdrop of all that difficulty that he has this shipwreck. And the ship breaks apart and everybody kind of washes ashore. Remember, God had made a promise to Paul that he was going to grant him. He granted Paul all 276 people on the boat. Now, just as a side note, I think this is important. Uh, I've heard debates before, oh, there could never be 276 people. That's not possible in that time. Actually, Josephus, in a similar time, talks about a boat that would go, I believe, I can't remember, I think it was between Rome and Cyprus or something like that, but it kept 600 people. So a boat with 276 people is very real at this time and in, this day, in these days. Uh, so they're on the boat. All 276 survive, and uh, there's a fire waiting for them. <laughs> Evidently, they get ashore. There's uh, the uh, indigenous people of the area. Now, the word there, it's interesting because it calls it the, them the natives. Now, don't have a flashback to like Gilgan's Island or something like that. Like this isn't, it's not like loincloth covered, you know, human beings with spears or something like that. That's the idea. The word there is like babaroi. And it, it basically, it's kind of, I don't want to call it a slur because uh, I don't think the Holy Spirit uses slurs, but it's, it's kind of a slang that, that Greeks made. And it, it's, it's barbar. It's basically the idea of you don't speak Greek, so you just sound like barbar, 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 barbar. That's what it means. So essentially, the natives are people that don't speak Greek. That's what it means. So he says that they, they show, and, and he even notes there, Luke uh, says it by inspiration of the Spirit. He says that it was unnatural, that it was not normal, this kind of hospitality they showed. Perhaps it was the Lord, whatever it was. But they start a fire for them. And that I would imagine there was more than one if there's 276 people there that have just washed ashore from this boat. 
But uh, regardless, Paul walks up to this specific fire. And just as a side note, remember we're talking about being God's servant. You just got shipwrecked. You've been in prison. Julius is chained to you. Probably not at that point because you swam ashore. All these things are going for you. Where do we see Paul? He gathers sticks for the fire. I think that's noteworthy. Now, we could, you, you could make the argument, because the scripture doesn't say, you could make the argument, say, well, Julius made him gather sticks. Maybe, but that doesn't seem to be the vibe that you see from their relationship. But I, I, I wouldn't want to make a doctrine out of that. But the important thing is, you see Paul, after great tragedy and great difficulty, he goes out and he gets sticks for the fire. He contributes. After washing ashore, I would be like, dude, I just washed ashore, and I'm tired. Hey, Luke. Why don't you go get some? You've been writing that book over there for a while. Why don't you take a break, get some sticks, keep me warm? But he goes, no, I'll gather sticks, and I'll, I'll, light, I'll, I'll put them in the fire. And as the saying goes, no good deed goes unpunished, because he gets the bundle of sticks, and he puts them in the fire, and a viper comes out and, and bites onto his hand. That would have been disappointing, I think. <laughs> At the very least, scary, because it says he came to no harm. So I don't know if that means that, that, the, the, that he just latched on and didn't penetrate or if he felt the bite. We have no idea. What we do know is in my mind's eye, it says that he's, he was there and he's, it's hanging off his hand. So just imagine, like, there's Paul. Like, oh. and, and everybody around him, all the natives go, oh, this guy's a murderer. That's the only conclusion that can be come to. This guy is a murderer and he escaped death from the sea. So the universe has now judged him or whoever their local gods were and now justice is still going to get him he's still going to die so then paul shakes off the serpent the viper and it goes into the fire and i assume dies and then they watch they're waiting for him to bloat up to whether his hand or his whole body to swell or just to keel over dead and they're waiting and they're waiting and they're talking while they're waiting it says right it says while they waited they're saying to one another so they're talking and then nothing happens so they go to the other extreme, and they go, oh, well, he must be a god. I mean, clearly, if he's not a murderer, then he's a god, because he didn't die from this. And I just want to make a note here. This is, so, this is how we roll. This is how human beings work, isn't it? It's one of the biggest bummers in the world when you get judged for something that happens to you, isn't it? It's incredibly unjust. Something happens to you, whether, you know, it doesn't really matter, a disease, uh, an attack, an actual car accident, and, and somebody in, in, from their worldview observes that and then says, oh, well, you must be like this. If that happened to you, you must be this immoral person. And that happens a lot in our society, in our minds. And I think we can just take a note from this. We don't want to take that example. Because when all of a sudden it, he doesn't die, they go to this other radical extreme and they go, this person is a god. This person has divine power. They, they uh, excel. They're superhuman. They're better than human. And it's just, again, in our society, it's like we have this weird pro, uh, uh, polarity where it's like either someone's the devil or someone's the best thing. We've, we've, he's, they're Craig Blockberg or something like that. Right? There's kind of this, these, these bookends. But we as Christians and as human beings... We don't want to respond that way. There's, we always want to research a situation or what happened or just say, hey, it's not my business. So these, these natives, I think they show a good and, and really the destructive um, current that, that can occur and really in any society and what it can do to someone. And it's noteworthy too. We don't know if Paul heard. Somehow Luke finds out because he wrote about it. 
We don't know if Luke overheard them. We don't know if they said later on, like, oh, funny story. When you first got here, we thought you were a murderer. But then you were, and now you're a god, but now you're not. I, we don't know. We have no idea how Luke came to the knowledge, but he has the knowledge, and he says, hey, they were talking about this way. I wonder personally, and, it's, and this is an inference, I'm going to be careful here. If I was Paul and I found out that someone was saying that kind of stuff, oh, this guy, you did you see that? This guy's a murderer. How would I respond? Would I just be like, you know what? To hell with you guys then. I'll keep the gospel to myself. Why would I want to help you? That's what you think of me? Well, I don't really care. But he doesn't. He actually goes in and, and this this event that occurs creates something pretty exciting. Verse 7, Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island. It says Publius. It's, it's, if you click on the little, I have this little cool program where you can see how to pronounce things. And it's uh, Poplius, actually, is, is the, the Greek pronunciation of it. And so this guy named uh, Poplius, the, he's, he's the chief of the island. It says there, um, go back and read. Sorry, lost my place. Got all excited about the name. It says there in verse 7 that uh, named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of uh, Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. And they were also honored, excuse me, they also honored us greatly. And when we were uh, about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. So here's what happens. Three days go by. I would imagine, again, there's a lot that's not mentioned here, so I want to be careful. But I would imagine if you were 276 people wash ashore from a boat, the natives see this, they show hospitality, they create at least one fire. I think we can probably assume there were more. And Paul gets bit by a serpent. Then he shakes off the serpent. They esteem him to be a god. My guess is that story made it around Malta. You see what I'm saying? I doubt they kept that to themselves. If you were at a gathering, if you were at like a beach bonfire, and one of the people from our church threw a bundle of sticks on the fire, and an actual cobra jumped out with its little big head thing and went... And then they shook it off into a fire and nothing happened. Don't you think you go home to Facebook and be like, this was crazy at the beach, right? I think that that would make it around, wouldn't it? When you come back to church next Sunday, you'd be like, dude, Bob got bit by a cobra right in front of all of us? Didn't die. He shook it off. So it's an inference. I want to be careful. But my, my, my guess, it's just an opinion, is that he probably got invited because this story made it around the island. And if you're the mayor, you're like, dude, this guy washed ashore, got bit by a, a snake, a poisonous snake, didn't die. I think I'll have him over for dinner. And so they come over, they feast, they hang out. And then one thing comes to another. Paul finds out this guy's father is, uh, is sick. And he goes and he prays for him and the Lord heals him. And so this generates something, doesn't it? It generates a thankfulness. It generates an acknowledgement. Again, it never says that they gave him the gospel and this is probably more inference I've ever done in any passage, but my guess is that they are sharing the gospel. It doesn't say they were, so I want to be careful with that. 
But this, they're having these interactions, and these people are thankful, and now they provide for everything they need for their trip when they're going to leave. They're on the island for three months. It says that in the next verse. So they provide everything they need. So this is what I want to put forward about this little section. This little part that Paul goes through creates an opportunity to meet with the, the head, the chief, and then from there to see the chief's father healed. And then from there, it says that they bring everybody. It says, and Paul visited him and prayed and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when that had taken place, verse 9, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. See, when Paul writes to the Corinthians, and I have to be honest, it's one of my favorite chapters in all the Bible, in 2 Corinthians 4, he makes a statement to them. And he's talking about ministering and, and the gospel and, and uh from a place of knowing Christ and different things like that. But in the middle of this conversation that he's having, he says to them, you see that the death of Jesus works in us so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested. And really when it comes down that if you want to be a person or if I want to be a person who serves Jesus, who, who says yes to Jesus, that concept is constantly in action. It is always a saying no to myself. So what does it mean to bear about the death of Jesus in our mortal bodies? What in the world does that mean? So when you look at Jesus' suffering when, and at Jesus' death, why did he die? Did he die because of something he did? Did he die because he truly deserved it? Did he die because he had done wrong and was executed by the Roman government? No. He died because he was paying for our sin. Now, the circumstances in which that happened was that ultimately we know from Pilate's commentary that's recorded for us in the Gospels that the Jews were jealous of him, the Jewish leadership, that he did these miracles, that he did these things. But when you look at, look at Christ's life, what was he doing? He was loving and ministering and healing people and forgiving people. So when Christ died on the cross, he died completely innocent. Innocent from any, he owed us nothing. He wronged us not, never. And yet he was crucified on our behalf. So the, the salvation that we have is not that we've now volunteered because Jesus died. Well, now I bear that in my body and I'll be a good boy, a girl. And now I will walk with God. So there I'm saved. No, he literally the death of Christ and his blood shed at Calvary purchased for us the forgiveness of our sins. That you and I have forgiveness because he sacrificed himself. It's a picture of the old covenant. And Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, you have the, you know, the, 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 and all the sacrifices, really, including the red heifer, that lead up to this idea of blood smearing over sin. So when Christ comes and he bleeds for us, his blood is shed. That's looked at by the Father, God the Father, as being, the, the Bible uses the fancy Christian word propitiation, which just means just the right payment that his blood was the exact payment for our moral wrongdoing. And so when, when, when we talk about now that we bear about in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus can be manifested, it's the same idea that we no longer live a self-centered life 
But that is not just a, a premise that just kind of for, you know, out there to kind of think about or put on the refrigerator, but that we actually live a life in individual moments where we will say no to ourselves, just as Jesus did in the garden. There's sweating drops of blood and, and, and from high blood pressure, from stress. And he says, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. If there's any other way. Literally, Jesus saying, if there's any way, can, this not, can it not be this way? But he says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. See, so you and I receive this amazing life through Christ, from Christ, because he denied himself and then was raised again from the dead by the power of God because death could not hold him. There was nothing to hold on to. He had no sin. He had done no wrong. So the just died for the unjust. The just paid for the unjust. So when Paul says, hey, look, I live a lifestyle now, or the servant of the Lord lives a lifestyle that says, not my will, but thy will be done. This says that I bear in my body the death of Jesus. So when I wash ashore on a ship, I'm willing to get up and grab sticks to put it in a fire. When I get bit by a serpent, what if Paul had just been like, come on, God. Two years in prison, Felix, Festus, Agrippa, this trip, chained to Julius. I finally make it to shore. It's kind of a nice beach out here in the Mediterranean. I'm just trying to help. I gather some sticks, and I get bit by a snake. Are you serious? Is that how you would react? It's how I'd react. Are you serious? This can't be real. I'm just trying to serve you, and I keep getting hosed. You ever felt that way? Because you're just, we're human. That's a self-centered idea, isn't it? It's the constant idea of how does everything affect me? What does this do to me? This makes me angry. This makes me sad. It makes us do all sorts of weird things. I, I, was, just, I was just talking to someone earlier today that, that was, uh, or someone earlier today, earlier this week, and uh, we're just talking about some difficult things that happen and how sometimes people will ask you things like, are you loyal to me? Because we want that loyalty, we want that closure, we want that, you know, that, that security. You know, all the different weird places we go when all of a sudden everything's about us. And so by Paul simply saying, I'm going to bear the death of Jesus in this. this is, it's not some weird, ethereal, gospel idea that Craig and his buddies talk about at Denver Seminary. This is real life. This is in the moment saying, I can bear this wrong. Now, I want to make this point. We don't ignore the difficulties in our life. Nobody's saying like, hey, just tough it out. Paul had it worse. Tough it out. Jesus had it worse. Suck it up, buttercup. Nobody's saying that. We have to deal with the difficulties that we have, and we have to be honest about it and work through it. And there's venues and avenues for that, whether it's talking to brethren, prayer, considering the word, and meditating on the Psalms, you know, counseling. All these different things are opportunities to work through the difficulty th of the things that we've gone through. So nobody's saying that you just dismiss everything and it just doesn't affect you. We're saying this, that when difficult things come up, instead of immediately internalizing it and making it personal, making it, I deserve this or I deserve that or I'm better than this or you shouldn't do that, to say, okay, Lord, I know you can work through this. In this case, he gets bit by a serpent. I have no idea if it hurt or not, because it says he suffered no harm. 
But at the very least, it was a weird, awkward moment where everybody thought he was a murderer afterwards. But it leads to something amazing, doesn't it? It leads to getting to talk to the chief of the island, healing his father, and healing every other person who had a disease or an issue on the island. So by Paul just not folding his arms and saying, I'm not going to serve you, Jesus, the snake is it. The snake is the hair that broke the camel's back. I'm not serving you anymore. I'm not going a step further for you. If there hadn't been the snake, maybe. But the snake, I'm out. I'm done. Then there would have been huge opportunities for the gospel missed out on. So by allowing the death of Christ to dwell in him, accepting what comes his way. In this case, with the, with the viper and with the accusation of being a murderer, in that case, he bore the difficulty that one might say he didn't deserve. A random viper attack and being accused of something that he's not. But being willing to walk through that, knowing the priority of his life, knowing who Jesus is and what he has for him, he's able instead to be involved in an awesome portion of building God's kingdom with this unreached island. So we kind of have to ask ourselves, what do you want? And I don't mean that like a jerk. I'm not trying to be rude. What do you want? Because what you want and how you go to get there will determine the fruit of your life, the outcome of your life, and really not just the outcome in the end, but it will also determine what you're like now. Because if you're... If your thought is, if I have money, then I will be happy. There's never enough money to make people happy. You ever seen Shark Tank? You ever, you ever watch that? I don't know why, but we watch it at my house now. It's on Hulu, and we ran out of stuff to watch. So as a family, we sit and watch Shark Tank. And there's, there's a guy on there on Shark Tank. And I actually, his real name is Kevin, I think. But he always goes by Mr. Wonderful, which I'm like, I don't know how I feel about that. But so... He's worth, I think, I think I looked up on him. He's worth like $400 million. He has $400 million um, in assets. He had a business. Anyway, it doesn't really matter. He's one of the most rude, and perhaps it's for the show, but he's one of the most rude and grumpy and greedy people on the entire show. Because you have other guys that are also worth $400 million, uh, and, and a couple ladies that are on there, um, and, and they're all actually really nice. They say, oh, no, thank you, or I'm not going to invest in that, or whatever. But this guy, he has everything that you and I could think we want. So if you have $400 million, you could spend $500 a day for the rest of your life and you wouldn't run out of money. Isn't that kind of wild? That's, that's just crazy. If you have a billion, you could spend over $1,000 a day for the rest of your life and never run out of money. But this, this guy, Mr. Wonderful, and really all of them on the panel, I'm not judging their hearts because I don't know, but it's, it's just about more money. Because you and I would say, oh, man, if I had $10 million, I, I wouldn't want any more. I'd be fine if I had $10 million. You might say, if I had 200000 I could buy a decent house. I wouldn't want any more. It's not real. It's never enough. Nobody, none of us have, oh, I don't think anyway. I've never met anybody personally who got a raise and then said, I never am going to need any more money ever in my whole life, especially like six months later. At the time, you might. I remember getting a raise from $7.50 an hour to $10 an hour and just seeing myself, this is insane. That was last week. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm totally kidding. That was when I was like 18 years old. 
But no, it was, it was, but I just remember, I remember thinking like, I'll never, oh my goodness, this is amazing. And like six months later, I was like, dude, this sucks. I need more money. Is it, is it earthly love that we think will satisfy us? It doesn't, does it? It's enjoyable. It's great. It's, it's part of what we're made for, acceptance and, and intimacy and all these things. But it, it, it doesn't completely satisfy you. See, pursuing things that are temporal will have temporal rewards. And they'll have temporal highs and, and, and whatnot. They always will. But in the end, the temporal always fades away. Because the only thing eternal on the planet is your soul and the soul of the person next to you. So when we pursue things that don't amplify and build and, and uh, well, I guess amplify and build the soul, in the end, they're empty. They're dust and ashes. And so if you have to decide, what do I really want? Because a life with Christ and walking with Christ on the outside can be very scary. You could end up in Malta. It seems unlikely, but you could. But it could just be being vulnerable. It could be tolerating someone's trash talk. It could be not raging when you want to. There's all sorts of ways that we try to preserve ourselves and, and we think if we don't do that, well, who will stand up for me or what will my life be like or whatever. There's times we just don't take steps of faith with Christ and then we pursue other things and then we wonder why is my life empty or why am I having this difficulty when the reality is moving forward, shaking off the serpent and swallowing pride or sw- you know, rage or whatever might come up because of the rumors around the serpent, what we'll actually find is life. So in the end, it, just, it really matters what we decide. Every decision that we make during the day, that culminates into what our whole day was like, right? And every decision that we've made during those days, that for a week, it decides what our week is like. And then every decisions, all the decisions we make during a week for 52 weeks, those will decide what our year is like. And then all the decisions add up to the end of our life. It decides what our life was like. See, life is lived today, now, in the moment. Eternity and eternal fruit is decided now, not later, not down the road. It's now. And it'll be five minutes from now and ten minutes from now to constantly decide, is it going to be me that I insist on and my comfort and my anger And my anxiety, how you treated me, how this happened, what I think of this, or is it going to be I say, hey, I'm the Lord's. And I can bear in the body the death of Jesus because at that point, the life of Jesus will then be manifested out of me. I'm not left dead. I'm actually living a resurrection life in Christ, a supernatural life, a spirit-infused life, a spirit-led life, a spirit-powered life. Without difficulty, there's no miracle. Does that make sense? If we do not have hard times, we cannot see miracles. If we do not allow suffering and the death of Christ in our life, we cannot live the life of Christ. It's just the way the spiritual things work. It'd be way nicer if you just like sat down and just changed, wouldn't it? It's just like you get saved and all of a sudden you're like, I just trust Jesus every day. I'm as happy as I can be. I never get low blood sugar. I never get hormone imbalances. Everything's just wonderful all the time. But it's not because we're humans in a broken world with broken people like ourselves. And we're just every day having to decide how do we want to move forward? What do we really want? And it's those micro decisions 
that make up the, the bulk of our lives. So he goes on there, and we're going to keep going here. And he says at verse 11, After 11 months we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria. So this is with the twin gods as a figured head. And most likely they're Greek. In the Greek it would be like Zeus and Adina uh, uh, or Athena. Excuse me. As a figurehead. And there's a whole thing to that we don't have time to go into. But essentially you have the natives with their superstition. And now uh, Luke points out that you have the Alexandrians and the Romans with their superstition. Most likely, if it's a ship out of Alexandria, it's probably one of the many grain barges that ran from Egypt to Rome. Uh, so it's a, it's a ship of Alexandria. In verse 12, putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for days. And then, uh, excuse me, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium or Rahim, and after one day south wind sprang up, and on the second day we came to Putioli, which is uh, the southern tip of the boot in Israel, or in, uh, did that last service too? Not Israel, in uh, Italy. It says, From there uh, we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. So we came to Rome, and the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Again, a day in the life of the servant of God. So they, they get on a boat. They're there. They're on Malta for three months. They get on a boat. Uh, they have everything they need from the natives. And then they start sailing. It just kind of chronicles their, uh, till they hit land in Italy um, and then they find brothers there, and then they're going to travel um, uh, back up to Rome. Verse 15, there's brothers, just means brethren, it's the same Greek word for brothers and sisters in Christ. And it says there that they came as far from the Forum of Appius and from three taverns. So uh, the Forum of Appius is about uh, 53 miles-ish from Rome. And three taverns is about 33 miles from Rome. So what happens is, however it worked out, we don't know. They got word that Paul was coming, uh, maybe from the brethren they first stayed with, he sent to them, whatever it might be. And so they decide, hey, we want to see Paul. And so they leave, and they go 53 miles. Now, for us, we just jump in the car, right? But let's be honest. How many of us are like, oh, so-and-so's in town. I'm going to drive 53 miles. I don't know. The couch is pretty comfortable. I could always FaceTime them. They could text me. Do I really want to do this? These guys probably walk. Maybe they're lucky and they have a donkey. But in a world where most people literally are struggling to get enough calories, and in a world where the vast majority of people are impoverished, they're just trying to make it, they say, you know what, it's worth it to us to go see Paul. And, and the, the fallout from that, the fruit from that is amazing, right? Because Paul, it says that he, he took courage, literally to, to take up courage, to grasp onto it. He was encouraged, meaning the power and the will to go on. Nobody's saying he was destitute and he was about to quit, but it's noteworthy that he was at least, I don't know how encouragement levels work, but he was at least at a point where seeing people felt, made him feel more encouraged than he already was. And this is, I think this is important. The, the, we need, the church needs, the world needs brethren that are going to be encouraging. Brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, there are times to correct and there's times to do that. And that's all fine and great. And the Lord leads you in that. 
But these guys, they just show up. It doesn't say what they did. They just show up. And by them just being there, it says that Paul thanked God and he took courage. Let's be those brethren. Let's be willing to go the extra mile. Let's be willing to, to talk to people. Let's be encouraging to people. Again, this is another step in not being self-centered. Now, I want to make another side point about that. There has to be strength in you to encourage others, right? And, and there's definitely times where you don't have the strength because you're tore up or you're going through things or whatever it might be. So please don't think I'm making some absolute where I'm saying, yeah, you better get out there and just be encouraging. And if you don't, then you're a failure. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that as we walk with Jesus and as we allow the death of Jesus to be alive in us we, uh, and we dethrone ourselves as the leader and the ruler of our lives and we invite Christ and his life to rule in us and we live by him and repent when we need to and commit our thoughts to him when we need to, as we do these things, we want to be those that then from that place of strength move forward and help our brethren that are willing to, I mean, 53 miles, even if you're rocking 20 miles a day, that's a, that, and that would be a clip, that's a three-day journey. you got to bring food. You're neglecting the farm or you know, whatever it is you do, the blacksmith thought you have. I, whatever it is, you're neglecting that now. Why? Because another human soul who's been imprisoned for two years and now has been stranded for three months is coming into town and, and you want to encourage him. And say, hey, thanks for writing some letters. <laughs> He's already written a few letters at this time. And he takes courage from that. Let's encourage one another. Let's, let's be willing to say no to ourselves for the sake of each other. Sometimes even just a, a cup of tea. Sometimes even just, how are you doing? It's amazing with just simple friendship and fellowship and care, once we step out of ourselves will do for others. And realistically, when we stop focusing ourselves, it's miraculous. We're miserable creatures. And the more that we focus on the inside at our own misery, the more miserable we get. If you don't believe me, and I don't mean this disrespectfully, go to retirement centers. Working at Medics Ambulance, we went to retire centers all the time. And I tell you what, you see the end of life there, obviously, right? But you see people that are so bitter and angry, and they feel ripped off, and they want to destroy everybody around them for it. And then you see people that are diabetic, no legs, you know, just absolutely wrecked physically, and they got big smiles on their faces. And they're just like, I know where I'm going. God's been good to me. He's amazing. And you're like, you have no legs. You, have no, you lay in a bed all day long. How is this possible? Because the death of Christ worked in them, and now the life of Christ is manifest. We're choosing one of those destinies every day. And we're also choosing how we help people to one of those destinies every day by how we treat them and how we interact with them. And I'm not trying to make just like, I don't know, dropping truth bombs or something stupid like that. I'm just trying to say your life is so incredibly powerful and you can use it for great things with the time that God has given you. And you can use it for eternal good for yourself and those around you. And that'll, you'll never be disappointed.
So these brethren, they just, they just show up and they encourage him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against my, uh, our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a former prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letter from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. So Paul calls to the Jewish leaders, sends a messenger to them, brings them to himself to, to talk to them about the gospel. And he begins by saying this, hey, uh, I've, this is how I got here. Uh, I hadn't done anything wrong. The Romans determined that. But he makes an interesting statement. He says there in verse 19, uh, he says, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. And he's just making the point that in his appeal to Caesar, he didn't accuse the Jews accusing him of wrongdoing. He didn't pursue any kind of lawsuit or legal action against the people that were asserting things against him. So Paul says, hey, I'm not out to get anybody. I'm not looking for that, that kind of justice. He says, I'm on trial. He says this again. He says over and over again, for the hope of our fathers. I'm on trial for Israel's hope, the coming of Messiah, the resurrection of the dead, all the, the fulfillment of the law and the promises. He says, that's why I'm on trial for this. And they have an interesting response. And I've read a few uh, um, little articles about this response because it was fascinating to me. I wanted to kind of learn about it. And it's, again, um, it doesn't say exactly, but most likely this is not true. When they say to him, not that the Bible is not true, but when they say to him, we had no idea who you are and we had no idea about your coming, that most likely it's very not likely <laughs> it's that, that they really had no idea um, because there was, there, the gospel had already come to Rome People were preaching the gospel in Rome. Uh, the, the, the idea that they had no idea who Paul was or they had no idea really what this sect was about is probably unlikely. They, they, but again, it's just for informational and context, not trying to make a doctrine out of it. But he says there, verse 22, but we desire to hear from you what your views are. So then verse 23, they leave and they come back. And when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. Remember, he's not allowed to leave. From morning until evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. Now, I want to stop there for a second, because this is where the English doesn't quite give the, the uh, Greek justice. When it says there that some were convinced, uh, it's the, the way that the verb tense is, it's like the idea that they were becoming convinced. So that they were starting to believe. They're like, there were those there that were like mulling it over, going, oh, okay, this, all right, all right, I hear what you're saying. But then the second portion, portion here, it says, and others disbelieved. The idea here is translated in other places uh, that they refused to believe. And that's important. In verse 25, and disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. So they're disagreement, they're kind of arguing with Paul, they're arguing with each other. They, uh, and then Paul says this, 
The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their eyes, excuse me, and with their ears they can barely hear. And their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn. And I would heal them. And so he quotes Isaiah, Paul quotes Isaiah back to these Jews. And the reason I mentioned about the verb tenses and what that means is it's important for this quote. And even back to, into Isaiah's teachings and what he was saying, he is not saying that God, whether back in Isaiah's days or in this day, he is not saying that God just said, well, you've been too naughty, and so now you can't believe. I just won't let you believe it. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, he says there, your, your heart's, has grown dull. This people's heart has grown dull, right? And he says there, with their ears, they can barely hear, and with their eyes, they have closed. This is important because it doesn't, it's not that God closed their eyes. It's not that God made their heart dull. It's not that God made it so they can't hear. They made choices in their life as Jews, they made choices to allow these things, their heart and their eyes and their ears, obviously that's allegory or metaphor, they made choices in their life that when it finally came time to receive Christ into their hearts, that they would not do it. Not that they could not do it. They could not do it because they would not do it. Does that make sense? They, they were unable to do it because they had already been saying no, 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 all the way down the line. And so it is with us, for the unbeliever, the person who rejects Jesus outright, they get dull and dull and dull. And then it's interesting, the more we reject him, oftentimes, the more angry we get, the more anxiety we get, the more depression we get. Because when you're rejecting all that is good in his life, all that is not is all that's left. Does that make sense? And so for us as Christians... It doesn't necessarily have to be, it's not a salvation issue, but there's some interesting warnings in Hebrews to Christians. First, we're warned when he's talking about the things of God and the gospel and who Jesus is, he says, don't let them drift, right? For something to drift, all you have to do is let go of it. Drifting takes care of itself, right? You're not, you're not, there's no active anything in drifting. You just either not rowing, if you're the drifty, (laughs) right? You're not rowing. Or if you're letting something drift, then you've just let go of it. And then he says, after that, he says, after not drifting, later on, he's, he's talking about the same type of things. He says, don't neglect this calling of salvation. Don't neglect it. See, drifting, letting go, or just putting no effort, that causes you to move away from something. It doesn't matter what it is. Clearly, I have drifted away from dieting. It doesn't, you know, whatever it might be, when you drift, you just let go. But drifting leads to neglect. Because once we have no, once we have no priority for something, then we just don't do it. We go, I'm not going to bother with that. Because once we, leave, we let things drift, we begin to not care anymore. Or we, we come up with all sorts of weird logics for why that might happen. And then we neglect it. We just go, I'm not going to do anything with that. A conscious effort. I just, I'm consciously saying, no, I'm not going to do that. And then drift leads to neglect and neglect it leads to rebellion. We're finally say, I don't really care what you have, God. 
Because even though this world is messed up and it chews us up and it spits us out emotionally and sometimes physically, it's weird how our sinful nature keeps bringing us back to it again and again and again. And we think this time it'll be different. This time I'll be satisfied. This time I'll have enough. This time it'll work out for me. It's crazy how we do that. And then again and again we find ourselves disappointed. So for us, we don't want to let ourselves get dull to it. We don't want to let ourselves drift. We don't want to let ourselves begin to neglect and then to rebel because that will have its fruit. It just will. The fruit of rebellion will be there and it will be miserable for us and for those around us. We don't want to end up like that. In verse 28, he says, Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. And he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. You know, it's, it's funny. We're, we're doing this whole podcast thing. Uh, that's for another time. We've been recording episodes for a podcast. And one of the topics we, we just recorded a couple uh, last week is um, why do pastors who persist in sin uh, prosper? You ever thought about that? You ever wondered about that? Why is it that you have guys that, and gals that will have some huge ministry? 15,000 people, people getting saved, missions going out. And then you learn well, that dude's been having affairs for like 20 years. Why does he prosper? Why does this work out? And then obviously we spent a whole podcast on it. We're not going to cover it now, but those guys, they actually didn't prosper. They made money and they had sex, but they didn't prosper. Paul is in house arrest and he's not allowed to leave and he's prospering. This is, this is prosperity. The fact that he got to sit and anybody who wanted to could come and he gave him the gospel and he talked to him about problems and he helped him with solutions and he helped him with how things work and what the gospel is about. He wrote letters. He did all these things. Now he's going to spend two years here and then he's going to um, be released. And we don't really know what he did after he got released. There's some theories about it. There's some questionable history about it. And then he's eventually going to be rearrested and then he's going to be beheaded by Nero. But for these two years, he just ministered the gospel day in and day out. He prospered. And we can have the same prosperity. Just the prosperity is that we're investing in heaven and investing in our brethren and caring about them. Lastly, when Paul's writing to Timothy, the last letter he ever wrote at the end of his life, he likens Christianity to a big house. And he says, he says, Christianity is like a great house. And he says, and just like in any great house, there are vessels or utensils, items that are for honor, and then there's items that are for dishonor. Really, it just means common items. And he says, in, in, in the allegory, he says, anybody who essentially lets Jesus cleanse them, you can go read it for yourself, lets Jesus work in their life, that person becomes a utensil for God's honor. And anybody who doesn't remains common. Now, his point isn't that, that some people have worth and some people don't, or some people are trash and some people are not. No, that's not his point at all. at all. His point is this, that when a person allows Jesus to work in their life, they become useful to the kingdom of God and to, and to, to serve how God wants them to serve. In other, in other words, 
if I'm a gigantic jerk all the time, right, and I go to every store and I act privileged and get angry because my latte is cold or, you know, whatever it might be, and then I, can I be used by God and then turn around and be like, hey, can I invite you to church? I teach there. I'm actually really cool and nice. Do you want to come? No, I've disqualified myself, right? I, I've, just, I've completely disqualified myself if I act that way. So he's not saying that one person is better than the other. He's just saying that if you let Jesus work in your life, making micro decisions every day, then in the end, well, even in the present and in the end, you will be useful and available for great things that God wants to do in your life and to use that in other people's lives. So I encourage you, make a decision today. Decide today and decide in five minutes and in 10 minutes. Lord, I don't know all that it means, but I want you in my life. I don't want to live in mediocrity. I don't want to live in a way where I'm constantly hoping for something more, never receiving it because it's only temporal stuff that I hope in. But give your life to Christ. If you're a Christian, give him your life and say, you know what? If, if, if this is you, I haven't been living for you. And I want that preciousness. I want that relationship that you have for me. I don't want religion. I want you. And if you're not a believer today, you've rejected Jesus, I encourage you, cry out to him. Ask him for that forgiveness that he purchased for you, already purchased there at Calvary. And receive him into your heart. And, and that resurrection life that he lives today, you can also live today. And have that, that peace and that joy from knowing him. If anybody would like to pray, we'll be up here afterwards. But God bless you guys. And I hope you have a great week. Father, thank you for your mercy that endures forever. And Lord, thank you for your loving kindness that is, is so high as the heavens above the earth. So great is your loving kindness to them that fear you. Lord, thank you for being merciful to us when we don't do everything right, when we don't think right. Lord, thank you for being kind to us when we, we don't deserve it. Lord, thank you for our suffering and the difficulties. Thank you for the vipers in our lives and the, the, the shipwrecks. And Lord, thank you that you're always there to bring good from that which is evil. And Lord, we pray that you would work in our hearts and our lives. You would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that our, our community would know you and would that all the churches of this peninsula that preach your gospel would grow and that people would be getting saved and discipled. Lord, I pray that we'd be awakened out of our slumber, our sleep, our stupors, and that we would press on uh, to walk with you. Lord, you're very good. We appreciate it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys.